That is quite the meal right there. We can leave almost after that. Just leave with a full spiritual belly. Right, Blaine? All right, Mark chapter 8. It's good to be back. I know that uh, it's always nice when Eric's preaching. I love hearing Eric's preaching. I know we all do. Um, and it's, it's, it's uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's nice. It's just nice. <laughs> I don't know what else to say, man. It's, it's a blessing to, to have Eric here, as we all know. So, Eric, thank you, man. Uh, Mark chapter 8, verses 14 through 21 is, is where we'll be as we continue working through the Gospel of Mark here. Um, and, you know, so we've been in the Gospel of Mark a little over a year, and this is good because we're almost to the halfway point in the Gospel of Mark. So there's, there's really a, there's a transition period between Act 1 and Act 2, and, and what we're looking at today is actually the last scene before we enter into Act 2. And so uh, especially the, you know, the, the pinnacle of, of Mark is, is Peter's confession that Jesus Christ is, is Lord, um, that he's the Messiah. Uh, he's the Christ. And so that happens in verse 27. So we're almost there, but, um, but that's the transition period. So if you think, I mean, it's taken us a year for the first part, God willing, a year for the second part. That's about right. I think that's about right. Sometimes, you know, the Puritans, they would take about 12 years for like the book of Jude or something, a very small book. And I mean, they would hammer every single word in every single verse. So anyway, so... Uh, Mark chapter 8, 14 through 21 is, is where we are today. Let's pray, and then we'll read this. Holy Spirit, please give us grace. Illuminate the Scriptures for us. Open our eyes. Lord, as we'll see today, we, we, we have to have your grace in order to understand, Lord. So please give that to us today. And We pray it all in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Okay, so, uh, so verse 14. And they had forgotten to take bread and did not have more than one loaf in the boat with them. And he was giving orders to them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. They began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet see or understand? Do you have a hardened heart? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the five thousand? How many baskets full of broken pieces you picked up? They said to him, Twelve. When I broke the seven for the four thousand, how many large baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said to him, seven. And he was saying to them, do you not yet understand? And you notice that last part, he was saying to them. So it's this repetition over and over and over again. It's almost like, guys, you know, so here's the thing, though, okay? So when you look at verse 14, if you, if you remember where we were two weeks ago in verse 13, okay, it says, leaving them, he again embarked and went away to the other side. So who did he leave? He left the Pharisees. Remember, the Pharisees were giving him a hard time again. They were kind of waiting for him to cross the sea, and they pounce on him. And so after they pounce on him, Christ abruptly and immediately and very decisively turns around, and he leaves that area. And the, the, the reference to embark, of course, is talking about getting on this boat. So verse 13, he, Christ, and the disciples get on this boat, and they go away to the other side. But in the meantime, while they're on the boat, the disciples start realizing they don't have any bread. Now, it's easy for us to look at the disciples here and say, these guys are, are just, and we've seen this before. You know, these guys are not the cream of the crop. These guys are continually making mistakes. Their hearts are hardened. They don't understand. They don't get it. And so here they are in this situation. We've already seen. Here's the thing about this. Okay, so we've already seen Christ um, with five loaves of bread, feed, feed thousands. With seven loaves of bread, feed thousands. And now here it says in verse 14, very explicitly, it says that they did not have more than one loaf in the boat with them. They've had, they have one loaf in the, in the boat. Now, here's what's cool about this, okay? 
what is the loaf of bread that they have in the boat with them? They have, they have the bread of life in the boat with them, right? They, it, you, I mean, yeah, sure, I'm sure there's a loaf. There, there is a real loaf. But the bigger picture is, is that they have the loaf. They have the bread in the boat with them. So they don't need to be concerned about anything else. And we've seen this disciple, the disciples, the other two times, you remember there, that there's two other times when the disciples are on the boat, and Jesus rebukes them both times when they're on the boat. Number one is when Christ is asleep and they're in the middle of the storm. Remember, there's a storm going on, and they're terrified, and these are sailors, and they're, they're, they're worried, and so they wake Christ up, and Christ rebukes them. Why? Because they have little faith. And the other time is when Christ is walking on the water. He's walking on the sea, and they're, they're afraid. They're terrified. He gets in the boat, and he, he says, oh, you have little faith. And so here the third time they're on the boat. There's no accident. I don't know what it is about the boat, but there's something about the boat that they just look around. They, don't, they lack faith again. They have the bread of life. The, the bread that comes from heaven on the boat with them, and they're turning around and they're concerned about boat or, or about uh, bread. Um, here's what you have in verse 15, though. Notice this, though. This is very, very critical as far as the, the ministry of Christ goes because Christ was giving orders to them. Now, that's a very strange phrase, is it not? We, how many times in the Scriptures can you remember Christ explicitly, where it explicitly says he's giving someone orders? Right. This is this is something, and not just that. Look what else it says. It says um, it's, he was saying, "Watch out, beware." So he's giving orders, and he's giving these 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 uh, these 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 words that are words of warning, words of, of concern. And and here's the thing about this. Okay, when you in life, we've all encountered people that give us warnings or tell us certain things, and says, "Hey, you know, beware." You'll you'll have signs that say, "Beware of dogs," and and you know, we all, we all get what that's like. But isn't it true that it depends upon the, it depends on who is giving you the warnings, giving you the commands as far as how seriously you take those things, right? If, if you're walking by a house, and for instance, like in El Paso, we used to put the beware of dog sign. We never had a dog, but we, the neighborhood we lived in, we're like, we should put a beware of dog sign, right? So if you're walking in some neighborhood and, and your ball goes into the fence on the other side of the fence and you see the beware of dog sign, you're going to at least take a peek. You're at least going to look into that house and say, okay, is there a dog or not? Um, and, then, and then there are other times when people might try to give you warnings. And, and you remember growing up or even now, if uh, maybe your parents, um, and we should all listen to our parents if you're a child, right? Um, but sometimes the thing is, 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 you know, it seems like as you grow older, then let's say... When, when, I'm, when I'm three years old, my parents give me a warning or a command, and that's, you know, you better obey it. You better shape up and do what they tell you to do. But when you're 30, when you're 40, then they, you know, they realize, okay, I might command you to do something. I might tell you to beware of something, but you know how we are. We're kind of like, yeah, but I, I, think I, I, I think I know better, you know, a lot of times. I think I, I kind of, I, I can kind of gauge for myself. Um, I'm not saying that's wise, but the point is, is this, okay? The person you should never do that with is Jesus Christ, ever, right? Or your parents if you're in the house, okay? But when Christ tells us something, when Christ turns to these disciples and he starts giving orders and he starts telling them to watch out and to beware, you would think that Christ, what he's talking about, is something that's very, very significant, very dangerous. And it is. But when we read this, what's interesting is sometimes in our culture, I don't think that we take Christ very seriously here. I really don't. And in fact, I know we don't. And I'll tell you, and I'll give you an example. Okay, so look what he says. What does he say to beware of? What does he say to watch out for? 
He says to watch out for, in verse 15, he was giving orders to them saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Okay, what is the leaven? Now, leaven, of course, is a, it's, 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 it's something that um, it causes things to rise. It causes things to, to transform, to change from the inside. And Christ gives, this is not the first time that we've seen Christ talk about leaven. He's talked about leaven as a reference to the kingdom of God. Remember, he says that the kingdom of God is like a little leaven that goes and it leavens the whole lump. You just have a little bit and it begins to work throughout the culture, throughout society, through the gospel, through the church going out. And it's bringing about this change. The kingdom of God is like that, he says. Well, most of the time when you hear or see the word leaven, it's usually used as a, as in a negative sense. It's usually meant to be something um, regarding sin, regarding uh, danger, regarding, regarding um, evil. Look what it says here, false teaching. So all these things. So when you look at Scripture and you see all the different references regarding leaven, most of the time they're, they're bad. And the same thing here. But when you're asking yourself, okay, what exactly are the Herodians and are, are the Pharisees doing that, that makes Christ so concerned. And what it comes down to, when you look at the parallel passages in Matthew and in Luke, you know what the, the, the concern is? is false teaching, false doctrine. Now think of this. False doctrine is what Christ's big gripe is here. His concern, and it's not just like a little thing that he's like, guys, hey man, you know, I just want to give you some encouragement. I just want to really encourage you. No, he's, he's giving commands. He's giving orders. He's saying, beware, watch out for false doctrine. The false doctrine of the Pharisees, the false doctrine of the Herodians. And you see this because um, here's the thing. What unites the Pharisees and the, and the Herodians is, okay, ask yourself this. What is, who does Herod think Jesus Christ is? We've seen this, right? Jer- Herod thinks that Jesus Christ is John the Baptist come back to life. So Herod sees the miracles that Jesus is doing. There's no denying that. The Pharisees are in the same way. The Pharisees also see the miracles Jesus is doing. They both recognize this is something supernatural. This is something otherworldly. We'll give him that. But Herod's over here saying, okay, he's John the Baptist raised from the dead. The Pharisees are on the other end saying, okay, he's not John the Baptist. He's actually a worker of Satan. And he's doing some kind of black magic kind of stuff. That's why people are following him. That's why he's able to do these powerful things. But in both cases, in Matthew, it says that he's alluding to the leaven here as an allusion to, or yeah, he's alluding to um, um, false doctrine. And so when you start thinking about why is it, and this is, where I, this is why I was saying earlier um, that I don't think we take Christ, I don't think we take him seriously here, in general, as a Christian culture. Now, I think they used to. You know, when they were burning Servetus at the stake for being a heretic, and they were, they were stoning people, you know, Joel Osteen would have been stoned a long time ago if he had lived in the 17th century. And, and I'm, not saying that's a, I'm not saying we should stone Joel Osteen. But here's what I am saying, okay? We look at those centuries, and we look at that culture. We look, you, everyone who's studying church history, you see it, right? The Arians are persecuting the, the, the Trinitarians. The Trinitarians, when it, the ball's in their court, you know, they kind of go after the Arians. Everyone, you know, we've all heard of, uh, whether it's um, and, uh, just, just, just a story or whether it's true as far as St. Nick goes, and he pops Arius in the face for being a, a heretic. And we see that, and, and we're like, Man, that is horrendous. 
Why would you, why would you take this stuff so seriously that you would actually burn a guy at the stake for teaching false doctrine? You know, in this country right here, when people, when the pilgrims would come over, and we like to think that they came over and there was freedom of religion and things like that, there was no, there was no real freedom of religion when you came over and you, you wind up in Massachusetts and you, you find yourself to be a Baptist, you're not going to last very long. You know, or if you're a, you're a, you're a Quaker in any state, you're not going to last very long, even in the Baptist state. Everybody's doing it. And so I'm not saying that's good. But I'm not saying that our culture is any better. Because our culture errs on the other extreme. Y'all notice that, right? Our culture goes to the other side. And we're saying, oh, man, hey, it's cool. As long as you, hey, I got a Mormon who came to my house, and he says he loves Jesus. And he says he reads the Bible, man. You know, I mean, can't we just get along? Can't we just, you know, the, 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 with the papists and, you know, I mean, we're all just kumbaya and, and everybody join hands. And let's just, let's just, let's just be Kind and nice and everything. That's the other extreme, right? And now think about how indoctrinated we are in our culture. Just think about this, right? We are so indoctrinated that when Christ is over here talking about, you know what he's telling these guys on the boat? He's saying this. He's saying something like this. What is the big deal about false doctrine? It poisons you. It will damn your soul to hell. It will destroy you. So when you look at the other cultures, when you look back in time in the history of the church and you see them doing these things and you're like, man, I can't figure out why they would take this stuff so seriously. They take it seriously because they realize that doctrine is important. Theology is important. Truth is important. Very important. Especially spiritual truths. And it's so significant, it's so important that Christ is over here warning them, telling them, watch out. Why? Because the, the, here, here's why this is so serious. Because the disbelief in the false teaching of the Pharisees and the Herodians, guess what's happened? It has already infected the disciples and has already spread to them. You realize that we cannot, our minds, we are so warped in our minds. We are so prone to go astray in every single area of life, but including theology. That whenever, here's the thing, whenever we are even around bad doctrine, bad theology, then what's happening is our minds are being warped. Our souls, our spirits are being warped by this stuff. You can look at the disciples and you can say, yeah, they're always around the Pharisees, are they not? Think about when Christ is going around to these places. And the Pharisees are always there, the Herodians are always there, the skeptics are always there. And don't you know the disciples are hearing what they're saying about Jesus? Oh, he's a worker of black magic. Or, or he's John the Baptist raised from the dead. Or, or you know, he's just a, a good man, like we hear in our culture, right? He's just a, he's just a guru of, 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 you know, just one of, of several thousand gurus, wise men, good men, good teachers, all this. But he's not who he says he is. And the disciples are hearing this stuff. And so by the time they get on the boat with Jesus, guess what's happened? They are infected by it. They're poisoned by it. And, and you and I, we might be able to say, oh, you know, but, but you know, we're, we're fine. You know, we don't, we don't need, but here's the thing. The disciples are with Jesus Christ 24-7, and they're infected by it. So how much more prone are we going to be infected by that kind of stuff? There is a reason why, like with the Puritans, they were called precisionists. They were seen as the scum of the earth. In fact, they were called Puritans because of their idea was that God is a God of precision. 
God is a God of a very precise theology, a very precise doctrine. And here's a, here's a quote I wanted to read. This is, a, this is, this is from, from Calvin. He says, Whoever desires to become a disciple of Christ must be careful to keep his mind pure from the leaven of bad doctrine. And if he has already imbibed them, he must labor to purify himself till none of their polluting effects remain. There are restless men, on the other hand, who have endeavored in various ways to corrupt sound doctrine, and in guarding also against such impostures, believers must maintain a strict watch that they may keep a perpetual Passover with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Ask yourself this. There are... Let me read something to you. Maybe we're doing it wrong. You know, I mean... No, put it this way. Are we doing it wrong? (laughs) Here's what Deuteronomy says, okay? Because again, the whole idea is like, is it really that important? You know, doctrine, precision, theology, good teaching. Okay, Deuteronomy 18.20 says, A prophet who presumes to speak in my name anything I have not commanded, or a prophet who speaks in the name of other gods, is to be put to death. Ezekiel 13.9, My hand will be against the prophet... Can't read my writing. Who sees the false visions and utters lying divinations. My hand will be against that man. Here's what, well, I mean, we can go on and on. What does Paul say in Galatians, right? When he's talking about, think about this, in Galatia, they are not that far off as far as what they're teaching. We look at it, we're like, yeah, they are. They're teaching, they're teaching salvation by works. They're te-. But here's the thing, right? What does Paul say? If anyone comes to you and teaches a false doctrine or something different than what I was teaching to you, let him be accursed. Let him be cut off from God. That's the strongest, strictest thing that you can put on somebody. And he doesn't just say it once, right? Of course, he says it twice. He says, in case you misunderstood me, if any man, even an angel, if an angel's teaching this kind of stuff, let him be accursed. And the reason why is because this stuff is poison. It will damn your soul. It will destroy souls. How many souls are destroyed today by Joel Osteen? And I mean destroyed. They turn on the television. They watch the televangelists. The televangelists are are saying, hey, you better send me a money. Send me your money if you want blessings. If you want to reap something, you've got to sow something. So I want your money. I want, you know, send it. And how many people, they are destroyed by that stuff. They believe this stuff. Of course they do. How many people in the Roman Catholic system, are destroyed by the papists who are teaching their false doctrines. They're being destroyed. Why is it that Martin Luther, think about these guys, man, they risked everything because of doctrine. That's all it was. It was doctrine. Is it, was it not? They're willing to risk their necks, to risk their life. How many people, how many wives, how many children have been destroyed because they want to make a stand for correct doctrine? You know, correct truth, like right teaching, straight from the, they're looking at scripture, they're saying, this is, this is, this is what God's word teaches, and I'm going to make a stand for it. But you see, our culture, now compare this with our culture. Our culture, there's no, right? I mean, if you say anything, like, oh, well, that's, that's false. That's, that's, that's false teaching. It's not good teaching. It's incorrect. Well, yeah, but let's just, can't we just like, No, you can't. Why? Because it's precise. God is a God of precision. Here's the other thing. Christ says this, Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. Why do people want 
Here, I mean, the motivation to preach and to teach false doctrine, what is that about? Why would people do that? And, and there is a strong sense, and I tell you what, anybody who's preached or taught or been in a situation when people... You know, the thing about preaching, I remember hearing Paul Washer say this, and Paul Washer said, you know, when you, when you, when you, when you, preaching in the pulpit is no place for cowards. That's what he would say. And you're like, I remember I heard that when I was first going into, into ministry. And you think, yeah, okay, I mean, sure, I mean, that makes sense. But then when you start getting into it and you start preaching and you realize, man, it is difficult to look people in the eyes and preach the word of God knowing that they might not want to hear what you're, what you're saying. That is tough. Nobody likes that. What is nice is when you're saying things that everybody wants to hear. That's, that's nice. And then everybody's coming. You know, everybody, you're, why? Because you're tickling their ears. Isn't that what the scriptures warn against? And there, there will be difficult time. There will be days ahead where, where, where people will, um, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside the myths. Jeremiah was stuck in a well. He was battered and beaten and bruised. All these things. Why? Because he's telling the people things they don't want to hear. It would have been a lot easier for Jeremiah had he just said, you know what? I'm going to be a false dude. I'm going to preach false things. Everyone's going to like me. I'm going to get along in life. And and that's that. Right? And this isn't just for preaching. This is for all of us. It's for all of us. Because when you go back to what Christ is telling these guys on the boat in Mark chapter 8, and he's talking about the dangers of this. False doctrines, false teaching. And the leaven is this. Leaven is any teaching here, any teaching that makes Jesus something he's not. That's false doctrine. And that's why, well, here's the thing. <laughs> I'm not going to say this yet. Okay, But look at verse 16, and you'll see this. This is why when when he's starting to talk to them, in verse 16, after he talks to them, they began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. You know, and it's like, man, how, what are they, what? Where does that come from? He's talking, he's like, beware, guys, watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees and the Herodians. They're like, man, he, he, he found out. He figured it out. We don't have any bread. And Jesus, this is why he's so upset in verses 17 and 18. He asked them seven questions and they're a composite from Jeremiah 5, Ezekiel 12, and Isaiah 6. All of them are judgment passages and all of them, especially Isaiah 6, has already been spoken uh, by Christ previously, but he's always spoken these things to outsiders, to unbelievers. Now he's applying these things to the believers. He's had it. He's fed up in a sense. So he asked them these questions, seven questions. So these are passages of judgment against unbelieving Israel. And um, here's what he says. There's seven questions. He says, why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Okay, that's a, right? I mean, what are you you guys talking about? Do you not yet see or understand? Do you have a hardened heart? Okay, now ask yourself this. Regarding us, regarding us meaning Christians, there's a reason why Mark wrote this, right? There's a reason why Mark included this in his, in his account of Jesus Christ. He didn't have to, he does. Everything is very selective. Why is he writing this? To the, why, is he, why does he include this? It's because he wants us to be challenged by these same questions. 
And ask yourself this, in what area has has bad leaven infected or affected my view of who Jesus Christ is, as you're reading this? My disbelief in Jesus Christ, my unbelief, because ultimately it comes down to that, right? They have hardened hearts, they don't believe. That's what Christ is accusing them of in 17. Why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet see or understand? Do you have a hardened heart? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? And then he starts talking about the loaves. When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces you picked up? They said to him, 12. We remember that. We were hungry. There was nothing there. You start pumping out the bread. We're handing it out. And then afterwards, we get 12 baskets. There's 12 of us. You took care of us. When I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said to him, seven. And remember, those were the large nets. So even though there's just seven and 12 of them, these large nets could have fed probably five or six of them. So there's a lot of food that is always left over. And he was saying to them, do you not yet understand? Why are you worried about bread? Why are you concerned about these other things, the trivial things of life? Who am I? That's what he's asking them. Who am I? Who do you think I am? And now we're going to see him ask Peter this. But you know what this comes down to? We see the same thing in our own lives. Because if you turn to Matthew 6, turn to Matthew 6, and, and, and look what Christ says. Very similar stuff here in verse 25. Matthew 6, verse 25, this is regarding, in my, in my scriptures, it says, the cure for anxiety, worried, anxious. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? And he's not saying this stuff is trivial. He's saying, I, the God of the universe, am going to provide this stuff for you. He's not saying go off and live in a monastery and just kind of do your thing away from everything and just be so high-minded, spiritually-minded, you don't think about it. He's saying the opposite, right? I, as God of the universe, am going to provide for all your needs. So why are you so wrapped up with those things? And he starts saying in verse 28, uh, 26, Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth more than they? Of course you are. Of course you are. And verse 27, And Who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today, and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you? Now, look at the phrase here, you of little faith. What's wrong with the disciples? They have little faith. That's what it comes down to. The Pharisees and the Herodians, they have, you can say, no faith, but it ultimately it comes down to the fact, the reason they don't have faith is because they don't believe that Jesus Christ is who he says he is and is who he's showing himself to be. So they don't have faith, right? And now he's looking at his disciples and he's saying, you know, the leaven, their bad doctrine, their bad teaching, it's infected you as well. You have little faith. And we look at our lives. Now, here's the, here's the, here's the rub, right? Whenever things in our life go to pot, or things aren't looking good, or the dark clouds of whatever trial come against us, and we start scrambling and looking around, and we're saying, oh, how are we going to get out of this? What are we going to do? We're pulling our hairs out. This is what Christ is saying. You have little faith. Because when we look at what Christ has done for us, and here's the catch too, we can look at all the things that Christ did. You Here's the thing. You, we look at the disciples and we're like, man, they had, such, they had, a, they, they had it easy. Because they saw him doing these things. They were with him when he's doing these things. Yet they still don't get it. 
They still don't get it. But here, here's, here's the, I would argue we have it way better than the disciples in this sense, okay? We have the testimony of scriptures, which they also had, the word of God, which they also had. So we have the same things they have, but we have more. Because James, for instance, James is not going to go see the feats of, of, of Paul the Apostle in the book of Acts past chapter 12 because he gets murdered. He gets assassinated, right? So James, you have, in other words, we have the scriptures that the early church, these disciples did not have, or they were in the process of writing. We have it all. And then we have 2,000 years of church history to look back on and to reflect on and to see that the movement of God, the hand of God was surely, and has been surely upon the church from the very beginning. And we have all these things that we can look back on, like in Hebrews chapter 12, it's talking about this great cloud of witnesses. And we have this great cloud of witnesses plus another great cloud of witnesses in church history that we can look back on and we can say, wow, the, the, the hand of God is surely upon us. And then you have the things individually in your own life. The ways that God has brought you through things. The way that God has delivered you. The way that God has been kind to you. When you didn't, you had no idea. You didn't expect it. You didn't, you, surely we don't deserve it. But look at God. Look at how he comes through for us. In the thickest trials that we could ever endure. And we look at these things and we're like, man, there's no way we can get through these things. And then we look back and we're like, wow, God is bringing us through these things. He's taking care of us. He's providing for us. And so here we are, right? So that's the thing. When Mark is writing this, that's why he's writing this. So that we can also be confronted by the same questions that Christ is asking his disciples whenever we're doubting. And it should be like for Peter. Peter's, you know what, what's going to happen with Peter? Which is really awesome, really nice. Peter is going to reflect and evaluate and consider the things that Christ is talking about. And by, wouldn't you know it, by verse 27... Look what he says. Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. and all. These are the same disciples, man, who don't get it regarding the bread. And you're talking, what is this? Eight verses later. They're with Christ. Christ says, who do people say that I am? They told him saying, John the, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, but others one of the prophets. And he continued by questioning them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to them, you are the Christ. He doesn't say it in the boat. He's got to have Christ come in and rebuke him. He's got to have Christ come in and stir it up a little bit. Say, guys, what are you, you know, all these questions that he's asking, that he's putting on them from Isaiah and from Jeremiah, from Ezekiel. That's what's going to spawn this, this awakening in Peter, presumably. When Peter starts to realize, wow, these questions that Jesus is asking. There's a direct link. Also, notice this. Look, there's a direct link between understanding and faith. That's why doctrine is so important. If you have an incorrect view of God, that's called idolatry. So you can have, a, you can have faith in, in, in the Muslim God all day long, right? I mean, there's a lot of people that have a very strong faith in that God. The problem, though, is that that God doesn't exist. That's idolatry. You can have a very, very strong faith in the Mormon God or the Jehovah's Witness God or the, all these different gods out there. But the problem is, is that those gods don't exist. So understanding and faith are very important. They're very crucial. That's why when you're talking like catechism and catechizing, you're talking, even um, if you think about like the, the, the liturgy that we use, the, it's an old Reformed Presbyterian liturgy. Look at all of the scripture that you're hearing in the, script, in the, in the service. There's a reason for that. There is theological transformation that people are being shaped by the liturgy, by what you're learning, by, by the teaching. 
Week after week after week after week after week, theological formation is taking place. And what do you know? It's like leaven. Leaven is both good or bad, depending on the context. Leaven is imperceptible. You take a little leaven, and you don't see anything happen overnight. Same thing with doctrine. Same thing with bad leaven. You don't see, you know, you're exposed to some bad doctrine every now and then. You don't see it. You might say, well, I feel fine. I mean, everything's fine. I'm not any different than I was whenever I, whenever I was not exposed to the, to, the, to the bad doctrine. But then I start getting exposed to it, and little by little, I'm being corrupted by it. I'm being contaminated by it. And so that's the important uh, the point that Christ is making here regarding the importance of good doctrine. And so here's what, um, here's what Calvin says. He says, All who have once or twice experienced the power of God, and distrust it for the future, are convicted of unbelief. If you've tasted, if you've experienced the power of God in the past, even in the Word, in your life, right? And then when it comes to the future, we have this distrust, that's unbelief. And so that's why Mark is writing this. Mark is writing this for us as God's people to look at this and ask ourselves, okay, where has bad leaven tainted or contaminated our view of who Jesus Christ is? And number two, number two, where in my life am I distrusting Christ? Where do I have unbelief? Regarding what am I not believing in who Christ is? He fed these men in the desert with manna from heaven. He has fed us in a sense. Right in the desert with manna from heaven, spiritually speaking, in so many different ways. So as you're looking at this, and then notice this too. Lastly, when Peter say so, so for next week, what's going to happen is that there's going to be a man who's blind who comes to Christ, and and Christ, he's going to implore Christ to touch him. Christ touches him, says, "Do you see anything?" This man looks up and said, "I see men, for I see them like trees walking around." And so a lot, of, a lot of the commentators were pointing out that there's a nice touch here because Peter doesn't get it in the boat when Christ is rebuking them. Peter doesn't get it. He kind of gets it. All the disciples, you know, they're kind of like, man, there's something different about the guy because unlike the Pharisees, they're in the boat with him. They're following him. They're, 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 they're trying to digest everything. They're having, they're having a hard time, but they're trying, right? But then this is that first touch. And then the second touch, see, what happens is, is then again he laid his hands on his eyes and he looked intently and was restored and began to see everything clearly. That's what we need. See, Christ has to come in and touch our eyes in order for us to see things clearly. Why is it that you have people running after false doctrine in the first place? Because they want false doctrine. They desire false doctrine. They desire their ears to be tickled. That's what it says in 2 Timothy. They want this. You know, they, they, that's, what they, that's what they desire. But we have this. In so many different places, but here's one place. Here's what it says in Matthew 11. And this is the hope that we have, right? So if you're looking at it and you're saying, man, I have been tainted by bad doctrine. Everybody here has. The second you turn on Caleb in the radio, on the radio, you are contaminated, man. You're infected. The second you turn on the chosen, and my mom and I, we're, 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 we're kind of discussing the chosen back and forth vigorously and with love, you know, but, but, but here's the thing, right? Now I close my eyes and I'm praying to Jesus and all I see is the guy who's on the chosen when I pray, right? I'm contaminated by this stuff. Or really, you know, for me, it's the passion of the Christ guy. 
What's that guy, Caravucci or something? No? Jim Caviezel. So I pray, I'm like Christ, but then I see Jim Caviezel coming to my head. That's not Christ. Right? You see, you see how quickly it happens, though. My point is, is, you know, I'm not saying, look, it's, you know, like, you know, all that. But the thing is, is we do have to watch out in every way and always be conforming back to Scripture, right? Always. My point is, is that we are all contaminated. We're all contaminated, man. We live in that kind of society. So we have to be constantly reforming back to Scripture, conforming our children's minds back to Scripture, exposing them to good stuff, not protecting them against the bad stuff. My, my children... Uh, I think it was, yeah, it was Christmas, Christmas Eve service. And uh, Tasha called and she said, hey, uh, you know, the, everyone's going to Central Baptist for the candlelight service. And can I bring the children? And I was like, no, no way. No way. Don't, do not expose them <laughs> intentionally to bad doctrine, to bad churches. Because it's leaven that's going to poison them. You see that? But ultimately, now here's what it comes down to. Christ has to open their eyes. We know that. right? It's not like a workspace thing. We know that Christ has to open their eyes. Matthew 11, and we'll end with this. Christ says this, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. This is what's cool about faith. The faith that we have has been given to us by Christ. You see that? That's why we can have hope and confidence and assurance that as we walk in life and as we live this path, and, and we're, don't be, in, you know, in other words, there's a fine line between being distraught and, and, and um, almost like uh, uh, in despair. Because we can't, everywhere we turn, there's false this and false that. And it's not that. You know, it's not to say that we don't need to walk with fear. Um, in fact, it's the opposite. We can have confidence that because God has given us the word of God, we can go forth and stand on that word, even if nobody else likes it. You know, if people are like, I don't, I don't like the sovereignty of God. I don't, like the, I don't like election. I don't like predestination. Right? Well, that's what the Bible teaches. That's what it comes down to. And, and you're like, yeah, but it doesn't tickle my ears. Well, I, you can't help that. But what happens is, is over time, and you know how it is. I remember my brother read through the Old Testament before he was a, I mean, it was weird, man, because he's not a reader, but he starts reading through the Old Testament, and he calls me up. And I don't even know if he knew what a Calvinist was, but he called me up. I guess he knew a little. And he said, man, he goes, you cannot read through the Old Testament and not be a Calvinist. I, Amen. That's right. This guy was, he's never been exposed, you know, but he started, it's right there in the scriptures. And so that's the thing, right? Christ has given us truth. It is right here in the scriptures. And so we can stand on this no matter what, no matter who comes against it, no matter, you know, well, I was talking to some guys in Lubbock, and we, you know, somebody made a good point. You know who the real charismatics are? The reformed Baptist, Presbyterian, you know, reformed guys. Why? Because when it comes to the church, when it comes to this kind of stuff, you know what we think you need in order to plant a church, in order for a church to really just be blessed by God? You need a flask of water, some wine, some bread, and the Bible. That's it. That's all you need. Why? Because the Holy Spirit's going to do the rest. That's the true charismatic. 
when you trust in the power of God to do this stuff. You don't need the fog machine. You don't need the lights. You don't need the awesome band. We'd take it, though, right, Blaine? We'd take a guitar or something, some music. But the thing is, right, we don't need that stuff. And so that, isn't that nice to know that ultimately it comes down to this? Why? Because Christ opens people's eyes through the, through the preaching of the Word. We can trust in that. And, and, and that's why, uh, I mean, think about where you were. Think about where I was 10 years ago, doctrinally. Man, it was awful. I don't think younger Ryan, I would have, I mean, I try to think of that when I'm at Texas Tech or somewhere preaching because I'm like, man, if I encounter younger Ryan out here, younger Ryan, I would go crazy at younger Ryan. So it helps me to, but that's the thing, we're growing, right? We're all in the process of growing. So our minds need to be transformed and renewed by the scriptures every single day and be guarding against the, the false doctrine and bad leaven. Let's pray. Oh God, we come before you in the name of Christ. And Lord, we, we are, Father, we are, we are so far um, from, from the goal. We know that so many, so many times, Lord, we are, we are so often like these disciples who are in the boat and they're infected by um, not just false doctrine around them, but, but by the unbelief that, that is so quick to rise up in our own hearts. Lord, please help us. Please give us grace. And, and Lord, please help those who are in our midst, who are around us and our families in this city, who, who have been infected and damaged by, by bad doctrine. Lord, please give us grace as we interact with them. Give us humility. Lord, give us grace to, um, to realize, to, to not be haughty in our, in, our, in our good theology. Lord, we know that uh, we, we, you've given us the truth here. We know that, Lord, but please give us grace to be humble with it. Lord, give us grace to uh, be patient with those that, that we interact with, especially when it comes to these matters. Lord, we do pray for the churches that are um, uh, infecting people with bad doctrine. Lord, have mercy on them. Please, oh God, have mercy on the, on the, on the teachers, the pastors. Lord, the people who are, who are doing those things, have mercy on them, oh God. We want them to, to be reformed. We want them to, to reform back to Scripture, to, to be conformed to the, um, to the pattern that you've given us in the Word. Lord, we know that apart from your grace, we, we are not any better than anybody else. Um, Lord, we are so blessed. Please, O oh God, continue working in us, work in our families, work in our children, work in our, our neighbors, work in um, especially our enemies. And Lord, please, O oh God, please um, let us all grow in the things of Christ and protect us, O oh Lord, from, from uh, the stuff that is out there in the world. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so now, the moment we've all waited for. Right? Amen. We're going to earn this one. We're happy. No, we really are. So, so uh, 